This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the Fort Mason Center in San Francisco at SoCap 2018, where impact investors, social entrepreneurs, philanthropists, business leaders, and innovators from across the world have gathered to share ideas and formulate actions that will drive positive social and environmental change. This is a Business Radio special presentation of Dollars and Change. Here are your hosts, Katherine Klein and Nick Ashburn. Good morning and welcome to Dollars and Change at SoCap in San Francisco. This is great to be here. I'm here with my co-host. Hey guys, I'm Nick Ashburn. It's so much fun because, you know, usually we're in the studio on campus in Philadelphia and today we are on the floor of the SoCap conference. It is great. And there is, I mean, our students have a lot of energy. Our campus has a lot of energy, but this place is exploding with energy and passion around the social impact of business, what we talk about every week. So we're really excited. A lot of excitement. Absolutely. And we will have a lineup of eight leaders uh, across industries with us over the next two hours. We are excited to be talking, uh, you know, with all these folks at SoCap. We had our our pick of amazing uh, folks to interview here as there are about 3,000 people here. 3,000. 3,000. 3,000. Impact investors. We know all of them by, <laughs> or maybe not. Uh, 3,000 impact investors, world-class entrepreneurs, cross-sector practitioners working across the nonprofit sector, the for-profit sector, all about driving positive social impact. So it's a great place to be. Such a great place to be. All right. So without further ado, because we have a, uh, a busy lineup, let us start with our very first guest, Hadia Mujahid, who is the founder and CEO of HBCU VC. That's a lot yes. of that's a lot yes. of that's a lot of letters. I know just yes, what they six mean. Six letters <laughs> and two acronyms. Yes. They're already acronyms squished together. Exactly. Right. So, all right. So, HBCU. For anybody who doesn't know what an HBCU is, what's an HBCU? HBCU is historically black colleges and universities, and, and, and the most famous ones are well, I, well, I. I went to University of Maryland Eastern Shore, but most people are probably more familiar with the Howard, uh, the Hamptons, the uh, Morehouse and Spelman, right. uh, Florida A&M. Those are the bigger universities. My university was pretty small. so Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but a great university as well. So HBCU VC. VC is, of course, Venture, venture Capital. capital. Yes. So what is HBCU VC? Yes. So HBCU VC, smash it all together. And what we're trying to do is we are trying to build racially inclusive economies through leveraging venture capital. So right now we understand that venture capitalists have a huge impact on, um, one, funding entrepreneurs and funding businesses. And those entrepreneurs then go, go, on, go on to create jobs and wealth and opportunities. However, right now in the current industry, um, there is a lack of racial diversity. Right. So we are increasing the racial diversity by starting by increasing racial diversity in venture capital. That so, is yeah, great. So, Hadia, tell me a little more about um, the, the legacy of HBCUs. And, you know, so our listeners, you know, it's like historically black colleges and universities. Yeah. That makes sense at a very high level, but just sort of break it down for us and help our listeners better understand, like, the legacy of HBCUs. Yeah, so I think most Americans are familiar with the history of our country and at the, um, and the, really the, the, the journey that blacks had to go through um, after slavery and at one point were not allowed um, education opportunities. So at that time, there were a lot of um, institutions that were formed, mainly in the southern region of the United States, that were uh, dedicated to educate in blacks. Um, h- however, you know, as time has gone on, um, these HBCUs have been have produced leaders and also have been leaders in not only civil rights, but now currently um, producing uh, engineers, producing lawyers, judges, um, and so. Majority of the HBCUs are still predominantly black. Um, roughly 80% uh, is a large diversity. And then when I say black, there's even a diversity w- within black because we have, you know, from just for the entire African diaspora, we have international students who come sure. uh, and attend HBCUs. Right. I, I have to just uh, say quickly that I was on the faculty for many years at the University of Maryland. Mm-hmm. And I uh, was helping my daughter many, many years ago do a history project on the desegregation of the University of Maryland. And I have to say, I was astonished Mm -hmm. to learn, you know, how, well, really recently, in the 1950s, we had the first black students at the University of Maryland. And there were even programs that was like, okay, you're admitted to the University of Maryland, but don't come to the campus. We're going to send you to North Carolina or South Carolina. You're a student, but you know what? You're not going to be. Yeah, really. 
that's how I it really began. didn't know that. It was astonishing to me. So we've come a long way, not yeah. as far as we would like. Yeah. Um, so your focus, at, so what do you actually do? Are, 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 you're, you're working with students at, yes. at, at, at the HBCUs now yeah. with a goal that what? Yeah. So we, we, I just want to clarify. So we started with HBCUs. However, within the last year, we have expanded to Hispanic servant institutions. And I don't know if you're familiar with those, but those are institutions that uh, have served at least, at least 25% of their population identifies being Hispanic. Right. Um, so our program is that we run a venture capital fellowship uh, for students who attend historically black colleges and Hispanic servant institutions. Uh, it's a one-year academic year fellowship. During that fellowship, the students uh, get to understand the, learn the fundamentals of early stage investing. Um, and then after the fellowship, they have an opportunity. We're launching a venture capital fund uh, next year. And next year, the students will have the opportunity to work in the fund and deploy capital to entrepreneurs on their campuses. So one of the things that I'm struck by, I was having a conversation with a faculty member at Howard last year. It was just last year. And we were talking about the business school curriculum at Howard. And of course, they're getting a strong education, business fundamentals. But early stage venture or you know private equity broadly, not really as prevalent. And so my not assumption is like, that's what you're trying to solve for it as yes. well. Yes, right now. So there's a current thing. So right now, most of the curriculum at the at the black colleges that we work at, there is a gap in understanding uh, venture capital um, education. So we're ser- we're serving that gap. Um, in addition to that, we're helping to support the support and foster entrepreneur entrepreneurs on campus by helping to deploy capital mm-hmm. through the venture capital fund. Right, because one of the things um, that I understand from the industry, and of course we're out in the Bay Area, you know, not too far from Silicon Valley, is that not only are we lacking in diversity among the VC community, but that also brings up bias in the areas of, that you invest yeah. in, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you're really solving, to, or you're out there to solve a couple of problems, or you're, several so, it's problems. It's so layered. It's yeah. very layered. You know, as of right now, we talk, especially when we talk to the venture capital industry, we have to let them know that they currently have blind spots. Yeah. Um, just because the people who are making decisions uh, on who to fund, a lot of times they can't understand the, the, the problem because they're not, the, the solution isn't solving for them. Uh, so we believe that the venture capital industry could could grow if we include more people in the decision-making process, and there will be more solutions that were made for more, more people, basically. Yeah. So, so as you think about uh, uh, HBCU VC and your work, and, and uh, reminding our listeners, uh, promoting venture capital and training students who are at historically black colleges and universities, and as you said, Hispanic-serving institutions as well, to get into the industry, are you thinking success for? I mean, I'm interested. Yeah. What, is what is success? success what does success look yes, like in five yes. years this is, for you? This is the this is the question I get all the time from my grant application. So the funders are out there. I hope they <laughs> get this. But success for me is, you know, it's more about creating an inclusive economy, right? So how do we take someone who is at Jackson Jackson State uh, Jackson State University in Jackson, Mississippi, right? How do we build someone, take someone there, they're an investor, they find someone and fund a student on that campus, and that student is the next uh, Google. I hate doing the, like, the next Google or whatever. But, <laughs> but that, everyone knows that in right. terms of how uh, expansive and the impact that is, right? What does that do for the Jackson, um, Mississippi community, right? right. Um, where you're able to create... Uh, a large-scale company that employs and brings wealth to a large community. And I think people don't understand that just 60 years ago in Silicon Valley, the 13, the $13 trillion industry that we see now wasn't really right. existent here, right? right. right. Um, and a lot of the, the wealth that we see, see today came through some of the uh, university spinoffs that we that we see today, like right. the Googles. And, yeah. And as you think about what you're training students to do, mm-hmm. do you see, you know, is, is your goal, I want to have more students coming from HBCUs and going into venture capital and being venture capitalists, getting into the industry? I want to have more of these students who are starting their own businesses and attracting venture capital or, you know, all of the above? All, all of the above. But uh-huh. I think venture capital has the, the biggest impact, right? So um, what, for me... I've been lucky in my career to, one, be a software engineer. So I've worked at startups and 
high growth companies. Yeah. I've also been a founder uh, seeking venture capital investment. And now I'm in the space of how do I create more venture capital. So I can see the, the, the problems at each each layer. So it, it I do see if we increase the racial diversity in venture capital, it actually influenced the entire uh, uh, economy and ecosystem. And it's a really interesting point. So one of the things that I've learned through some of the research we've done at the Wharton Social Impact Initiative is that in order to be a successful venture capitalist, some of the most successful venture capitalists have actually been operators. Yeah. It's not that you came from investment banking right. and then you became a really great VC. You actually have been in the trenches working or creating a business and then you're able to choose that. Not only that, but it really is industry or sector specific. Like, Not that I was like a SaaS developer in one hand and then I went and invested in manufacturing or something weird. Not that VC is good for manufacturing, but you know what I mean? Like the industry is important. So if you take that to another level around race and gender too, like, like you said, the, if, if you have more African-Americans in, um, in VC and they're really looking for companies that are going to be more inclusive in the communities that need them the most, there's, a, there's that correlation too. Like you can't invest in communities if you don't know no, them very right. well, right? Yes, absolutely. And, and, and we've, we've seen some, some mistakes from the current venture capital industry. One, um, investing in um, maybe startups that uh, were culturally appropriate in other startups and they weren't able to see that from a blind spot. So when, it, when the press got a hold of it, you know, so if anything, you know, a lot of people should understand that diversity, if anything, is a risk mitigation tool, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, but f- for us, it is understanding, you know, for us, it's not about creating an investor to come here to Silicon Valley, um, you know, but really it impacting their communities where they come from. How do they take this concept of, of venture capital um, and build the communities in, that they come from? Another thing uh, that's worth noting is I, I lost it. Hey, we are on the air, and it, we're like, hey, I have this great idea, and okay, then I just blank. Yeah, so don't worry yeah about there's it. a lot happening here. So our listeners, of course, are, are you know really interested in the social impact of business, and we are so excited to have all those listeners. What would you like them? The last question for our next guest. Our, these are quick interviews. What would you like our listeners to understand about HBCUs and, and venture capital? This intersection where you're working. Yeah, so for us, um, I think a lot of times, and we're a nonprofit organization, so a lot of people, we're working in the venture capital industry, which is really motivated by for-profit returns, and then we have to go and get grants from the philanthropy world. And what people don't understand is that that line should not, be, that wall between the two should not be as thick as it is, mm-hmm. right? There, and I think this is what SOCAP is about, right? Um, you can have both, and actually between... Um, there one influences the other. As we look at, there's the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, there's the Google.org. All of these foundations um, and new philanthropy organizations are coming out of businesses that were venture-backed. Right. So that's right. something I'd right. love to for the audience to know. Well, thank yeah. you so much for being with us. Hadia Mujahid, who is the founder and CEO of HBCU Venture Capital, VC. Uh, great to have you with us. We're going to turn to our next guest. So exciting to have uh, all these guests uh, joining us. Our next guest is Yana Kakar, Global Managing Partner at Dahlberg Advisors, a Wharton alum, since we always like to brag about our Wharton alums, and a, and a leader in social impact. Yana, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, this is a real pleasure. Thank you. Uh, it's great to have you with us. Uh, give our listeners the, you know, the sound, soundbite description of Dahlberg. Sure. I mean, Dahlberg is, in a nutshell, an advisory firm that focuses on innovating in order to create both financial, social return. And we do that with investors, we do it with businesses, but the fundamental premise of Dahlberg is you don't have to have a trade-off between uh, the, the financial part and the social part, or in fact, for that matter, the environmental part. Yeah. And, and where is Dahlberg, uh, where does Dahlberg work? So we were started about 20 years ago, um, and now we're in 23 offices around the world. Uh, about eight or nine of our offices currently, and I say eight or nine because we're growing at that rate that I'm never quite sure I have the number <laughs> right, uh, are across Africa, um, several in Asia, Latin America. And, you know, one of the things that's distinct about Dahlberg is, you know, we're, we, work, we work on issues of inclusive and sustainable business and responsible and impact investing. And so that brings us a lot into emerging and frontier markets. 
But one of the distinctions about Dahlberg is 80% of our staff in those 23 offices I mentioned were born and raised in the markets in which we serve. Huge. We hear about this so much about how important this is, and it related to what our, our past guest was saying as well, right? You need to, you know, be of the community to uh, to invest in the local community. Certainly, that to invest in to support the local community. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And and so, Yana, can you help our listeners better understand maybe like where the field, the quote unquote field of international development, mm. has been, and sort of the changes that you've seen over time? And and I'll give a little bit of a quick anecdote, like because I started my career in international development, mm-hmm. very kind of NGO, non governmental, non profit organization focused, capacity building, you know, education and training, um, and and in my opinion, I've seen it sort of move to like business for development, you know, for economic development, and now we think. As, as our last guest mentioned, sort of this hybrid of philanthropy and investment capital. And so how have you seen the landscape evolve over your time at Dahlberg? Sure. I mean, Catherine, stop. I'm stealing my thunder. I know. Sorry. I hate when, I do, I hate when you do that. No, and no, I, not at all. I'm pulling your leg. But I think you just put your finger right on the pulse. So, you know, fundamentally, like I said, 20 years ago, Dahlberg has started. And the, and the initial goal was... Let's take, and by let's, I mean the folks that preceded me, let's take the best and the brightest from business schools, from sort of private sector careers, and and bring their skill set, their energy, their enthusiasm, their skill set, to the problems of global development. Um, Now, what's shifted over time, and I see this reflected in Dahlberg's own business model, is it's not just international development as a problem to solve. Mm. It's international development as an opportunity Mm to capture and to understand. It's not to say that there aren't problems to solve, but I think that fundamental shift between conceiving of emerging and frontier markets as a problem versus an an opportunity space has been the most significant shift that I've seen over the last 20 years. So I think a skeptic might say, yeah, that all sounds good, but aren't you losing impact? in this process when we focus on the opportunity the opportunity for business you know I get that it's more sustainable but aren't you losing impact what's the response to that Catherine's such the cynic today I know, I know, I, you know <laughs> no but this no, is it this devil's is, advocate play, exactly <laughs> it's an important question I mean people conceive of reasonable people can disagree about what impact is mm-hmm. to my mind yes the reason why opportunity, or that's the lens that I look at this through, is for the very reason of sustainable impact. So let me explain. You know, I've done quite a bit of work uh, where I am on the one hand um, uh, giving grants or charitable contributions to the cause of smallholder farmers. Now, that has an important role to play in terms of impact and improving their lives. But it is also fundamentally a limited pool of capital. Mm -hmm. I'm only ever going to have so much access to grants. And no matter how terrific my implementation of that program is or my strategy around it, it is it is finite by definition. Yeah. By contrast, you know, in, in uh, recently, I mean, one of the many one of the many things we've done recently is a uh, is an agriculture SME investment fund. Now, through that, if we can help as Dahlberg develop this investment fund that does enable a sustainable commercial rate of return right. for investors. Well, then we can get those smallholder farmers that are starting to plug their produce into uh, the, the sort of small traders and the processors, et cetera, and then you help those businesses start to scale. Well, then I don't need to be continually finding the grant capital because through the opportunity challenge of investing in right. the small and growing businesses in, agri, in agriculture – um, you're able to create um, sort of the going concern, the sustainability of the impact. And now I don't think it's an either or. I think both have their place. And that's one of the things about Dahlberg. Like we work at the intersection of public sector, private sector, and philanthropic sector. And our clients represent, you know, a third from each. It's great. It's and, a great and, example. And it, I'm struck be, to, to hear maybe how your Wharton background might mm. help you in being the global lead of this, you know, pretty major organization. Because when, if I think about some of the organizations that I've worked with in the past, very traditional international development NGOs, mm. I can't imagine them, and I, I apologize for being a little harsh on them, but it's like I can't imagine them adapting mm. to this changing environment so nimbly as, as what I think I've seen Dahlberg do. Mm. And I'm curious to hear how you have navigated that shift as the leader of this organization. You know, it's, uh, it's one of the things I'll really say, you know, with respect to Wharton is 
this is sort of encapsulated through an anecdote, which is uh, when I was there, I was quite passionately interested in microfinance. Now, from a, just a personal standpoint, it's because I, I'm a finance geek who happened to be passionate about issues related to women and girls. So I thought it was microfinance. Of course, it's sort of evolved and expanded uh, to include but go beyond that now. But I went at the end of my first year to um, the administrator's office at Warden to ask if I could teach an elective class in microfinance uh, for second-year MBAs. Now, this is a point at which Wharton didn't even have a commercial finance class. So I'm basically saying, could I teach you know, commercial finance for the poor? <laughs> um, this is you know, fundamentally investment banking school. And very much to their credit, they said yes. That's great. Oh, and wow. so, you know, I didn't think the story was going there. <laughs> it, was, it was going there. And I understand anyway that you know, version 2.0, 5.0, or what have you of that class is now you know, continues, uh, continues to this day. But the reason why I cite that is, you know, Wharton didn't just sort of give me the uh, skills to run a social enterprise because, of course, Dahlberg is a social enterprise. It's a, it's a for-profit business with a social mission, which in many ways is actually, I think, much trickier than a straight-up corporation because you're trying to maximize for two things at the yeah. same time, which I would never advise anybody to do, but you're trying to do that. And so Wharton, on the one hand, kind of gave me the skills, obviously, just to, operationally and otherwise, uh, managerially, but... Also, just that, that space, that entrepreneurialism that when they said yes to these, these sorts of things enabled me to start to take risks. You know, what did I really know about teaching? I mean, let me tell you, nothing. A microfinance class, so on and so forth. But it's all of these things, I think, where you get skills, you're stretched, you're supported, that ultimately enables you, as you say, to be able to be flexible and resilient and adapt to what is a very rapidly changing uh, business environment for yeah. us all. So, Yana, I, I want to come back to um, you. Gave us a great example of you know investing in in uh, s- small and medium sized enterprises in agriculture to ultimately that's influencing you know getting from creating the businesses all the way to the uh, the folks who are doing subsistence farming and, and improving their lives. I'd love another example that you're excited about, and maybe in a different industry. Mm-hmm. I know you do work in education, mm-hmm. employment, gender. Is there another example for our listeners that you like? This is a really innovative and positive, high-impact approach. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, of course, you know, you, you always start by saying, well, if I share a success story, what, what do I mean by success? What really defines success? And again, Dahlberg, it's this combination of impact and, and, and sustainability. But, you know, I, a range of examples popped to mind. So, you know, I'm, very, I'm, I'm pleased as punch about the fact that, you know, we worked with a very a, a leading global investment bank, um, and a uh, bilateral bank uh, to create a facility to invest in women-owned enterprises. Great. Originally targeted $600 million, has already exceeded a billion really? in investing in women entrepreneurs across emerging markets. Wow. You know, and you only exceed to that degree if you are, in fact, having success with that. So you know, there's examples of successfully crowding in or catalyzing capital for these purposes. Um, there's success in terms of innovation. So Dahlberg, one thing that's very much in our DNA is, uh, is innovation. And so over the last few years, we've brought uh, a group in. It's now a big data group within Dahlberg, uh, Dahlberg Data Insights, a human-centered design group, data design, a household enumeration survey. So we are increasingly taking uh, AI, machine learning, as well as very granular microdata and integrating into the work we do. And there's a, a great example, um, Mercy Corps, who's actually here with us somewhere in SoCap, uh, and Dahlberg and Safaricom uh, and others partnered uh, on something called DigiFarm, which is basically a, a technology, a handheld technology to enable um, information exchange as well uh, as price exchange, etc., and training uh, for smallholder farmers. And then last but not least, but I will say, you know, we're in the process right now of doing the world's first operational education development impact bond. And so, you know, these are very sort of innovative and and still yet to be totally road tested type of things. Uh, And so it's uh, there's a a range of sort of a range of experiences that I think uh, we're in the process of learning and are learning our way into. Um, but but with, you know, knock on wood, some degree of significant success so far. Uh, so, Yana Kagar, we're talking with Yana Kagar, Global Managing Partner at Dahlberg Advisors. Last question mm-hmm. for you. Uh, we're sitting here at SOCAP. We're in San Francisco, you know, with thousands of people here. Is there a key lesson that you would have folks in the U.S. learn 
from Dahlberg about work to be done in the United States. You're, you're focused mainly in emerging you know, markets and frontier markets. We have a lot of issues here at home. Yeah. What should we learn from Dahlberg? That is a great question. And in fact, uh, maybe five years ago, we actually made a very conscious decision at Dahlberg to say, we're actually about the issues. So we've been working much more uh, North America-based in the past five years. You know, you care about climate change, you can have it in your own backyard. Um, the one thing I would say, though, in terms of that, that exchange, if you will, global south, global north uh, learning, um, is we have learned that there is pretty much no substitution for listening. Mm. And it's a strange thing to say while I am talking. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, SoCap has this amazing energy. Yeah. It has amazing energy, and everybody wants to meet, and everybody wants to talk. But I think SoCap, as a convening, is an incredible opportunity to listen. It's great. And listening, whether it is, you know, to your, your partners, whether it's to sort of the needs, truly being demand-driven, listening so you learn about the next innovation, I think it's been a, a key success factor in a very sort of often unspoken way uh, mm -hmm. for the work we do at Dahlberg. Great. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. Yannicka Carr, Global Managing thank Partner you. at Dahlberg Advisors. Great to be here. SOCAP, and great to be talking with our next guest, Tom Mitchell, Managing Director at Cambridge Associates. Tom, welcome to Dollars and Change. Thanks, Catherine and Nick. So for our listeners who don't know Cambridge Associates, what? Who is Cambridge Associates? Great. Uh, Cambridge Associates is a global investment advisory firm, and we started about 45 years ago in the U.S., largely working with college endowments and foundations at that time, um, really helping think about best practices around institutional portfolio management. And that's really expanded over the years. We work with a global range of clients, endowments, foundations, families, pensions. Um, I would say that relevant to SOCAP, We've always had clients that were focused on some level of responsible investing, but as that practice and market has evolved over these last five decades, um, and particularly accelerated greatly over, say, the last 15 years, we've built a dedicated practice around that. So I'm involved in what I call our mission-related investing practice, mm -hmm. uh, where we work with clients focused on sustainable impact and mission-aligned investing. And that's been a... a keeps us very busy, and it's been a great part of our business. If you had to estimate how much of your business is mission-related, how, uh, you know, how many of your clients are mission-related, how much of the advising work you do is mission-related, what are you seeing? Yeah. So luckily for me personally, all the advising work I do is mission-related and impact-focused, so I, I really enjoy that personally. But at a business level with the firm, um, we have over a 1,000 clients globally, and if we look at what our client activity is in this space, um, we have right now uh, about over 130 are actually putting capital work. So 13% actively putting capital together with intent for impact or alignment. Um, I would say that another 7% are in very serious progress right now around strategy development and thinking about how to activate this in their portfolio. And But it's hard to draw draw firm lines because what you also see is just a greater awareness around the material value of sustainability mm -hmm. and environmental factors, social factors. So a lot more of our clients and our research platform are saying, where's this materiality? Where are the risks that are out there and the opportunities when we're thinking about an investing a global portfolio? So you know, I think that we're going to see just a much greater adoption of ESG, whether or not people want to do it for impact or mission alignment um, in general. And that's, that's a strong trend that we're seeing across all our clients in the industry. And, and Tom, one thing that's been on our minds at the Wharton Social Impact Initiative is how organizations, whether you're a foundation, an investment advisor like Cambridge Associates, or a big bank, how you staff for this sort of new age of investing. Um, yeah. And so what's your background, and, and how do you think about the skills that you need on staff to, to execute on these portfolios? It's a, it's a great question. I mean, I've been really fortunate. I actually came to Cambridge with a bit of a non-traditional background, so I would, I'm a little biased to tell you that I think having a bit of a diverse background mm -hmm. is helpful to be an effective impact investor. So I came from a world of community economic development here in the U.S. and moved into development finance outside the U.S., really focused on private equity and emerging markets and where you'd have a high impact and highly inefficient and um, in unformed markets even. And so th I think that's been really helpful. Academically, I, I received an MBA, but also a degree in planning, mm. focused on economic development. So I was really focused on sort of microeconomic decisions you do in a business school, like an excellent place like Wharton. Where you say, how do you, run, how do you run a company effectively? But also looking at what's that policy interaction and what's sort of the regional economy around that. And that's been helpful for me as I've gotten with clients to even at least know enough to be dangerous, if you will, about affordable housing, about 
you know, systemic investments into enterprises and how they'll connect to a region so that you can envision impact and then yeah. ultimately measure it. So I think from a staffing standpoint, what we see is having some of those skills important. We've been hiring in people that not only have MBAs, but also degrees in environmental science or environmental management can really speak a language of sustainability. We see our clients, say in a family office, hiring professionals in-house that also bring very specific deal experience or sort of life experience in certain regions or places that are important right, to them. So, right. that, yeah. that, that makes total sense to us in our experience. So it's something, you know, we're lucky to be able to do at a university, right? We have a phenomenal business school, but we have a lot of other great schools. And when we can get students the, who have that all, it's The great. business part is critical, though. Like what I tell people is the impact and understanding that is critical. But let's not forget the investing piece because at the end of the day, if you don't have the fundamentals and can't execute good investments – um, it kills a lot of momentum around doing further work. Yeah, right. absolutely. And let's go back to the, you said um, something like 7% of your clients are considering impact, moving more towards responsible investing, I, I think. I don't think I yeah. put words in your mouth. I, I'm curious about that, that journey. Who yeah. starts, you know, who are these people who are, who are these people, institutions that are saying, you know, maybe we need to do more of this? Yeah, you know, it, it's a mix of people that are kind of, Known in the headlines now, you see big foundations coming out with announcements of commitments to impact, and you also see a lot of activity in, say, the family office side. I think college and universities are probably a, a bit of a step behind, but still focused Seems on Seems like the, it. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, pensions with large pools, thinking about things. But if you think about the foundations and families, I think that journey starts where there usually are people that are... are top decision makers um, or on a board and they they see this importance there's the, the financial officers that say look this corpus we have drives the enterprise drives our engine so it's not just an investment exercise but it's thinking about how are we being as effective as we can be with our capital um, be it on the grant side or the investment side or can we find things that we might get a venn diagram overlapping that can be highly impactful i think the journey starts you tend to get these conversations with doubts and naysayers that have to be. So part of that exploration is, frankly, usually people that are more classically trained and uh, more traditional investments say, what is this? I don't believe it. How sure. can we get good returns? And so what we go through is really sort of a level setting of let's take decisions off the table and just learn together. Mm. And so there's a lot we've seen in the market over that we can point to where not everything is excellent, but there's a lot of things that people should be considering or overlooking, and there's a lot of undercapitalized areas sure. that will be impactful where you can invest. You're also going to get a great return and have good impact. And so that conversation yeah, with U.S. foundations takes about a year, a yeah. year and a half yeah. for people to work through that. Same, for a moment, I'm intrigued by the process point, I think, at the process discussion point about take decisions off the table and let's just have a conversation. Yeah. What is that? Say more about what that means, because that strikes me as a really, you know, good strategy for opening minds. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a tool I use specifically if I walk into a room where I might have ninety minutes or two hours with a board that meets quarterly. If they have a decision pressure point on that, and people, and I find there's usually people sitting on different poles of an opinion around: yeah. should we do impact? Is this crazy? Are we going to lose our shirts? To we need to, ch- you know, we have to stop climate change, and we need to like raise equity and, and, and inclusion now. Um, if there's a decision around that, those people aren't going to agree in those 90 minutes. Sure. <laughs> so it's, I say, look, we're just going to learn together. I know we're at a committee meeting. We need to make decisions. There's the decisions we'll make. But around learning around this, let's just talk. And let's make sure you all at least have a common understanding of the way we see the world and try to bring them a robust view of the landscape and the potential and that usually, I find, brings those poles closer together. We can get somewhere the next conversation when we actually have to start making decisions. Yeah. <laughs> and, Tom, you know, one of the things I think a lot of people at SOCAP might know, Cambridge Associates, specifically in the impact investing space from the private equity benchmark that you all came out with several years ago, um, they may also know Cambridge from just private equity broadly. But, yeah. if you know, you're an outsourced CIO, you're thinking about it across asset classes. So in your work, is impact investing mostly still found in the private equity space or alternatives broadly? Or is it you guys are really thinking about it, you know, across the board? So, you know, my, my job is to manage multi-asset class portfolios that are global in nature as far as where their exposure is. So public and private markets. I think that when you look, I think most people, in particular to SOCAP, when you think of high impact or visible impact where you can get through, that generally tends to fall in, in the private markets. And some of my clients favor that as their primary driver of impact because mm-hmm. they're primary providers of capital in that case. But I think there's a great misconception that you can't have impact in the public markets. I mean, every investment has impact. 
Um, and whether you're intending to have a positive impact or not, you know, it depends on how, where, where you get in that conversation and setting your strategy. Um, and so when we look through on the public side, you know, what we want to do with any investment is know what we own and why. And sure. so you have a very clear understanding of why you're invested in certain public strategies, debt strategies. People, you know, get more excited about private equity and venture capital, but, you know, fixed income and providing affordable debt to a lot of impact entrepreneurs or institutions and enterprises is, is critical. And so it's less sexy, if you will, but it just as important to your endowment portfolio from a risk-adjusted return standpoint as to driving impact. Mm -hmm. So in following up on Nick's question, how do you think about the the uh, impact strategy in public equities. If you're, you know, if you're pitching this to me as a university endowment, you know, investment uh, professional, what should, what would you tell me? So, when you get into those, so if I'm talking to a university endowment professional too, and, and you might have some of that skepticism around what, what are we talking about here? People say, well, how do you, you could be limiting your opportunity set in public markets? People tend to get wrapped up around benchmarks and tracking error. The fact is most people pursue some form of active management in their investing. So what I would tell you first is that impact investing is a, is a highly active form of investing. We're making active selections right. mm -hmm. on fund managers, on strategies. And so when you look at the public markets, we are finding they're not in overabundance, but there's been a growing number of institutional quality public equity managers, for example, that are really thoughtfully integrating thinking around sustainability and impact with their fundamental financial analysis of a company and a security and so, uh, frankly, what I want to do is find someone that will hold a high-conviction, concentrated basket of securities and, and a portfolio for you um, that have real clarity as to what the drivers are for sustainability there or impact. And, and they're able to think through it in terms of how that will manifest in price um, over time. And so we're seeing that more and more now that, um, you know, I'd say 10 years ago it was harder to find those managers, but because of the work that's happening in business schools and people that come out of places like Wharton that become portfolio managers, there's just a different thinking around that right now than there was, you know, 15 years ago. And are, are the, the data, whether it's the prevalence of data or the quality of data, is that helping too? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're just in an amazing world of big data in general. So I, I think, you know, investors can never have enough information um, to help process a decision. So I think it is the data. I think it's also just the, the actual a money manager or an investor also needs to know the questions asked. So the data can help to some degree, but there's imperfections in measuring sure. companies across these. But it's what does the data tell you? What questions should you be asking? And what doesn't make sense you should dive in deeper? I think how you use that data matters as well. Great. So we are have to wrapping up just in a moment. We're talking with Tom Mitchell, Managing Director at Cambridge Associates. So, Tom, last question for you. One of our, our, our first guests this morning was uh, Hadia Mujahid, who's the founder and CEO of HBCU VC, working with HBCUs. We're obviously uh, at a university, at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. From your perch, you've been in this for a long time. You're in a great position to have influence and to focus on impact. What would you tell students or tell us in educating students? Like, you know, if this field is going to continue to grow, we need students who are trained in what? We need students to go into what? Uh, well, in this field, I mean, I think you, gotta, you, have to, you have to know whether you're an entrepreneur, mm. right? So if mm. you're an entrepreneur and you've got those tendencies and you've got that makeup, right, then you need to pursue that to its fullest because I think ultimately entrepreneurs – and, and social entrepreneurs are going to drive the change. You know, if you're where I don't have the entrepreneurial skills, maybe, or maybe I don't have the fire that I had when I was younger and did some entrepreneurial things, but learn from that. Um, on the capital allocation side, I think it is, like I was saying earlier, don't forget the investing part. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you can get really excited about the impact things, but, it's, but you really need to be, you know, dead serious and make great decisions and reflect that back to the world around you because that's where capital will continue to follow into the space and help support those entrepreneurs. I think the biggest risk that I personally need to manage is making a bad investment, both for my clients, mm -hmm. right. um, but also yeah. for the field. Sure. I have a great obligation to everyone here to make sure we do excellent things and it serves as a model for others. Yeah. That is a good reminder. Yeah, you are a standard bearer. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with us. Tom Mitchell, Managing Director at Cambridge Associates. 
And, and our next guest here at SoCup in San Francisco, where we're having so much fun, uh, is John Levy, the director of Impact at Franklin Templeton. John, welcome to Dollars and Change. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Great to have you here. And, and, uh, so, uh, and I see you are wearing a uh, UN uh, Sustainable Development Goals pin and a SoCap <laughs> pin. And you are the director of Impact at Franklin Templeton. So tell our listeners first, and maybe we'll dive into your pins, but tell our <laughs> listeners first, um, what is Franklin Templeton? Sure. Um, Franklin Templeton is a, a large asset manager. Uh, we manage over $700 billion, uh, in assets covering uh, equities, fixed income, uh, private equity, real estate, hedge funds. And we really operate globally uh, with all different types of clients, uh, from, from retail uh, all the way up to large institutions. Um, and so that, that's Franklin Templeton. It's really one of the most global um, large-scale asset managers in the world. Got it. So, uh, and, and you get to, uh, to direct the impact space. So what is the impact piece of the, the work that, that Franklin Templeton does? How big is it? Where do you focus? Sure. So Franklin Templeton's done a lot in the responsible investing space, especially mm-hmm. uh, over the last few years. But it really started uh, with Sir John Templeton, one of the namesakes of the firm, who before there was a term for SRI, right. um, didn't invest in tobacco and other sin-type stocks. And so it's really in Franklin Templeton's DNA uh, to think about uh, our investments beyond just the, the financial return. Um, we've integrated ESG into most, uh, pretty close to all of the uh, processes among all the different boutique managers across the firm as well. And John, I just everyone here at SOCAP might know what ESG is. I think we've talked about it a couple times on the show already. It's environmental, social, and governance factors. So just for our listeners yeah, who may not be right. here yeah, at SOCAP. No, yeah, I uh, uh, apologize for that. Yeah, that's, that's, okay. that's very important. And we've done it in a way that's really relevant uh, to each underlying asset manager within the, the firm so that it, we're not superimposing uh, a certain set of... of uh, ways to use that data. It's really been specific to the process of the individual group. And then impact, in terms of explicit impact, impact what we're calling, uh, we're new into this space. Uh, we just launched our first strategy uh, focused on, on uh, social infrastructure in the real estate space. Um, but again, our history of responsible investing uh, really goes back to the early days. So we want to we'll uh, dive into that, but talking first about the ESG strategy do you, when you think about an ESG strategy, and again, and as Nick said, environmental social governance strategy, a couple questions on that. First, do you think of that as screening out bad or screening in good? That's a great question. I, I actually think of it as um, a way to reduce risk and in some instances add alpha. Um, another trend in the finance world right now is smart beta. It's this idea that okay, there wait, are... Okay, wait, wait. We got too many terms. We love these terms, but all right. Yeah. So we, we got like... Uh, you, you it sounds risk. like a Wharton finance class. <laughs> we got risk, we got alpha, we got beta. So what, are the, what do these things mean in Essentially, English? ESG, uh, it's not just about being altruistic okay. about how you want your money to act. It's also a way to find value in companies. We think there's long-term value in companies that are being thoughtful about how they, they exist in the world from an mm-hmm. environmental standpoint and how they, they live in the societies that they affect. And so that's really, we don't think of it as a negative screen. We think of it as a way to uncover value and attractive investments. And from a risk standpoint as well, it can be very valuable as you can avoid companies that may get in trouble down the line for, for not being very thoughtful about their role in the world. And that's uh, certainly going to affect them financially as well. Got it. So I wanted to come back to that concept of social infrastructure, yeah. I think you said, in real estate. Um, what, what is that? I mean, I could take that a million <laughs> different ways. Yeah, social infrastructure, we define that as the, the physical assets that help uh, social services be rendered to communities. That's, that's a, another loaded phrase. Okay, but so really it's not, I don't think it's investing in bars, Nick. Oh, Darn. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe restaurants, though. Later. Uh, Later. Uh, great examples affordable housing, uh-huh. uh, investing in schools, uh, hospitals, and health clinics, and, and even civic buildings. We think um, in, around the world, there's really not enough of these, and mm-hmm. the quality of them tends to be very low. And so we think there's a lot of work that can be done by providing aligned long-term capital to, uh, to these owners and take, take ownership ourselves and really improve the quality and hopefully by providing capital improve, uh, increase the overall stock of social infrastructure. Interesting. Okay, so, well. so, and you mentioned ownership. So are we talking about a, uh, a 
an alternative asset class like in real estate, not like a bond that would be correct. Correct. We're we're talking about physically purchasing uh, the real estate assets. Interesting. And so, and this is a new a new fund that you're creating, or. It's a, uh, we can't speak to the specifics uh-huh. of the investment vehicle, but it's a strategy that, that we are running. So, as you, you know, so one of the things that's getting uh, attention, Nick, you've, this is something I know you've worked on, is a place-based investing. And I wonder when you think about a real estate, in, a real estate mm-hmm. infrastructure investment vehicle, is it important that you have multiple investments in the same community, multiple buildings? Are you thinking, like, we're going to go into Philadelphia is it, you know, it's one off, it's one building here, one service there, or is it like, nah, you know, we're going to target some, some cities? How do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's a, a valid and, and very good approach, but we, all, we don't think that's a prerequisite. Mm-hmm. To us, the key is stakeholder engagement. Um, what we don't want to do is superimpose our values on communities. We want to understand what does the community want from this health clinic? What are their concerns? How do they think we can improve it and take that as input into our decisions? And so when we think of place-based, to us that means being uh, involved in that community, hearing the concerns and and the wants and wishes of that community. And so that's uh, we integrate that fully into how we uh, try to create positive social and environmental impacts. That sounds super important, super valuable. And what I'm wondering is how does Franklin Templeton actually listen to people in the community like where and how does that actually a $700 billion <laughs> yeah like manager. there's a little bit of yeah i'm i'm, I'm yeah I'm, it's like i'm i'm struggling to see the event uh, or the the mechanism by which that happens absolutely well we may be headquartered here in san mateo near near socap yep. but uh, we're a very global firm with, with resources really across the globe and and we also partner um, as well. And so for any given asset, we go visit the asset, we talk to the community, we talk to the management, and we, we get into those communities as much as we can. And by being long-term capital, we also don't have to have that full engagement day one. It can be a, an evolution over time, or as we take over ownership, we'll understand that community more and more over time and can continue to hopefully improve um, the value of that asset to its community. Interesting. And John, I'm hearing an implicit impact thesis in this investment, but is it about improved outcomes of Absolutely. Ed, like educational outcomes or health outcomes? Or like what's the impact thesis in going into these investments? Absolutely. When we think of impact thesis, we, we call that a theory of change. It's really about starting off with what are the challenges you're trying to address? How do you plan to address them? And then what are the, the impacts or the outcomes? And as I mentioned earlier, to us, the, at the broadest level, broadest level, it's about there's not enough social infrastructure. So by providing capital that is aligned with the purpose of the, the building of the facility, um, we think that's very impactful. Um, that's, it's, it's very explicit also specifically to each sector. So education is going to be about education outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, healthcare is going to be about health outcomes. Of course, one of the things I think those of us in the impact space know is you can't go then do research. You can't go follow the individuals who've gone to that health clinic and see where they're at 20 years from now for outcomes. So what you really do is you take uh, key performance metrics and you tie that to well-renowned research that shows having more affordable housing in a community creates stronger communities, better health outcomes, better education outcomes, etc. So we try to tie the data to the, the research that shows those real outcomes. That sounds familiar, Catherine. Yes. <laughs> yes, we think a lot about that. We think a lot about impact measurement and, you know, and what is the research evidence and how do we integrate all of this? Well, and I think to that point, one thing that we're very focused on at the Wharton Social Impact Initiative is, is this, uh, this idea on the front end of sort of impact due diligence. Depending on what company or sort of investment we're looking to make, specifically looking at what do we know from the evidence of academic literature. Mm-hmm. Because we don't, again, like we're not going to do a randomized control trial, although we could, we I could. guess. We but could. probably on a portfolio of investments, that's going to be a long time, a yes. lot of resources right. for yes. us, right. let alone a commercial investor. Yeah. So um, I think we're very interested in looking at, you know, let's say we are doing affordable housing. You know, what's our, what, what are we being sold on one hand, what the impact is from the, the investee? But also, what's our theory of change? What's our logic model? And where do you know we really think the impact from an evidence-based perspective mm-hmm. lines up? Mm-hmm. And then, from a portfolio management perspective, thinking about 
to your point about key performance indicators, what are we managing toward? You know, making sure that we stay on track. So I know we're thinking about that, and it sounds like that's relatively aligned with how yeah. you're thinking about it too. And, and there's such a, an obsession, I'd say, around these key performance metrics. Mm-hmm. But uh, as a standalone, those those don't mean much. So we've we've educated 300 students. What what does that mean? Is that good? Should it have been 500? Right. Should it have been 100? Sure. It has to be placed in a context, and I think research plays an incredibly important role there because of the the realistic limitations of you can't go and study the long-term effects of, of, of every investment. Right. Yeah. I'm curious, as you uh, we're, as we're coming to the end of our, of our segment here, where you see the field going? I mean, at Cambridge Associates, with this, you know, with, with this uh, size of assets under management, you have a perch to really see. Franklin the... Templeton. Oh, I got it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm looking down at my notes. Thinking about oops. our last guest. Oops. Oops. <laughs> Yeah, dad, damn. I don't think I've ever done that on the air before, but it's first time for everything. Thank you, Nick. Franklin, uh, Franklin Templeton. And, uh, yes. Uh, so, your perch. Tell us how you see the field evolving. What do you think is going to, given the trends you've seen, where do you see the field in five or ten years? Absolutely. I, I think uh, a lot of people here at SOCAP, I, I kind of call them the first generation impact investors. There are a lot of people who are proving out the field and proving out that you can you can get attractive rates of return and still care about what your money is doing. I see the trend shifting now to scaling that. It's been proven that you can do this. Mm. And I think firms like Franklin Templeton are trying to come in and pro- find ways to bring scale to, to a lot of the best practices that are, are being practiced already and help further define those those best practices as well. But a part of that too, I think there is a skepticism about seeing large firms come into this space. I see a lot of people who have been doing this for, for decades, they're a bit worried that firms are thinking of this as a marketing exercise, right. as taking what they're already doing and spinning it. And I think that's why it's really important to be authentic about what you mean by impact. And we've really built that into our approach. It's about transparency and being really authentic, not overselling the role you have, but really being true to how much you can do while also providing attractive returns. And that attractive returns part is so important. I heard your previous guests talk about that. If you want to bring scale, if you don't get the returns, you're going to be a one and done and no one's going to invest with you. So it's really important for us to think about this dual return approach. Right. We're hearing that a lot while we're, while we're at SoCup. And uh, I love the point about the authenticity. And you're right. There is a skepticism about you know, large institutional investors and large firms getting into this space. Uh, and so it's it's uh, you know it's it's refreshing to hear you know the importance of authenticity and and uh, and coming back to the coming back to the core. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe in the last thirty seconds, what are you hoping to get out of SoCap in a sentence or two? Sure. I mean, I think what's great about SoCap is it's it's really the clashing of worlds, right? I mean, I think the previous model was you, you can make money or you can give money away, and I think you see people coming from traditional philanthropy backgrounds, and then you have the investment bankers all coming together, and I just love how that forces really robust conversations, and already seen a lot of those, and just really looking forward to to seeing those uh, meaningful conversations happen over the next few days. Fabulous. Thank you so much for being with us. John Levy, the Director of Impact at Franklin Templeton. Uh, this is Dollars and Change. I'm Catherine Klein. We're going to take a short break, and uh, and when we come back, we'll be continue broadcasting from uh, SOCAP 2018 in San Francisco. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.